Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banter Podcast, where birders talk birding. I got a chance today to talk to a couple who took an adventure that I think most people and most birders would only dream about. Oh my goodness. Paul and Michael Webster just finished, just before COVID, a five-year travel through South America in a pop-up Toyota, traveling who knows how far through most of South America, experiencing things that are just almost unbelievable. They talk about times where they almost their vehicle almost got swept out to sea in the tide, where they barely made it through raging rivers, where wind ravaged their vehicle with a sandstorm so badly they had to have the electrical systems and the windshield replaced, uh, and where they saw fabulous birds. Paula is a videographer and a filmmaker. She created some fabulous documentaries. You'll see links to those in the blog post associated with this and some of the podcast notes, and they have stories to tell. I think you'll really enjoy hearing from Paula and Michael Webster on the Bird Banter Podcast, episode number 119. Help me welcome Michael and Paula. Michael, Paula, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this with me. Thank you, Ed. Hi. Yeah, I, uh, I was really happy when you reached out to me. I, uh, you know, I somehow envisioned you being a kid. You know, when I, I got the email, it's our, somebody traveled for five years in South America. They must be just young pops. But no, I mean, you're, you're certainly not old. But I mean, I was expecting somebody in your 20s or 30s for the adventures you're doing. Holy mackerel. <laughs> yeah. We, when we were traveling, we did meet a lot of young people. And we didn't meet many people that were in our you know, mature age bracket. Yeah, I was expecting that. That's pretty exciting for you. And I also saw that on your Facebook page, you have a Facebook group, I think it's Living Wild in South America Facebook uh, group or page or something. Yeah, that's uh, right. and, and you describe yourselves first as bird watchers. And so after that is conservationists and video makers and photographers and stuff. So I said, this could work out really well. This is a podcast about birding. So tell me about your birding stories. Well, uh, we both um, have been birding really all of our lives. Um, we met as teenagers, as uh, independent bird watchers, and travelled quite a bit uh, around Europe. Um, and, um, and and therefore, it, we've just been bird watching all of our lives. Very cool. Very cool. Did you get into it at really pretty young? It sounds like. Oh yes, yes, we're both. Very young indeed. <laughs> Are you second generation bird watchers or did uh, your families not get you into it? No, not at all. No, families weren't really interested in birds, but it seemed to be a good thing to do. Yeah, our family thought we were crazy, really. Our parents didn't understand it at all. Okay. So how did, uh, you know, young birders, uh, young bird watchers evolve into really a career of conservation and photography and travel and just crazy stuff. How did that happen? Well, we were, we were just sort of kids. And one of the things that we did um, in, in our university years was we sort of said, shall we take a, a trip birding? So off we went. Um, this was quite a long time ago. Um, we just sort of hopped on a train and uh, out of London and went across Europe. We went all the way across um, Turkey. And we're, one, <laughs> we're probably one of the few bird watchers that have watched pretty extensively in Iran. 
Um, so that I won't say any more because that probably shows what age we might be, <laughs> because you certainly wouldn't do that these days. No, it'd be um, a little scary. If you could even do it, you probably couldn't do it even if you wanted to. Yeah. Well, good for you. So you obviously uh, can travel well together. I saw uh, a little video clip of the Toyota vehicle you used in your South America travels. And, you know, you guys have to get along in small spaces. We sure do. We sure do. There's not an awful lot of secrets that we have, you know, from each other anymore. <laughs> I can believe that. We got to a certain point in our lives when um, things were beginning to go a little bit askew. Um, and we said, okay, that's enough of that. Um, bird watching is what we want to be doing. Um, so we both sort of um, gave up our jobs, really. Um, we were able to, we'd, we'd uh, done enough. And uh, we said, right, what we're going to do, we're just going to go to a place that we've never really been to before. Because um, not a lot of Brit bird watchers spend a lot of time in South America. Africa is more the place and Europe and maybe even the Far East um, mm -hmm. for the really adventurous bird watchers. But South America is not really a choice, a destination choice, or it wasn't too much for, for British bird watchers. So we said, oh, well, let's just go there. And we decided because of the sort of bird watching we like to do, um, we like to do bird watching slowly. We very much love to do the bird watching on our own. And when we can sort of just really enjoy it and all the other things that go with bird watching as well. Um, photography, obviously, Paula is a, is a filmmaker. Um, and we've both been interested in um, photography and filmmaking um, for many, many years. Um, and like you said earlier on, Ed, you know, we are conservationists. So although we're bird watchers, we've always been passionate about conservation. And I think that, um, <laughs> I think that you and many of your listeners of a certain age will also re understand with us that when you've been bird watching for as long as we have, it's only then you realize how birds have changed and populations of birds have declined so catastrophically. So sure. we said, you know, let, let, let's, let's go to South America and just see what's happening there. Yeah, and see what's happening, see if we could find people that were making positive inroads into bird conservation and saving wildlife. And that was a, a great opportunity for us to have our eyes open to the fantastic work that a lot of people down in South America are doing. Yes. I mean, your video that uh, I, I watched this morning, the Tango in the Wind video, I saw on YouTube. Oh, my goodness. Talk about remote, difficult place to work. And uh, it, Tango in the Wind, Tango in the Tornado almost, it looked like. I mean, it was. Yeah. yeah I mean, Tango in the Wind was was probably the highlight of, of, of the years that we spent there. Um, and it launched us as well. Um, into so many other directions that, that, that the next two or three years took because the hooded grebe, which is the bird that Tango in the Wind is all about, is perhaps one of the rarest birds. It would certainly be amongst the top 10 rarest birds in South America, mm -hmm. without a shadow of doubt. Um, and nobody had really, there'd only ever been one very small film made about it. Um, very good, but it didn't really capture the, the courtship behavior. And, and we were working, or we'd, we'd approached the conservation organization in, in um, Argentina, which was our base, Argentinas, 
and they knew of our existence. We'd been into their offices many times over the sort of the preceding 12 months. And suddenly we got a phone call from, from the people one day to say, Michael, Paula, would you like to make a film about the hooded grebe? So we said, oh, well, yeah, wow, we would. And, and that really, we spent then perhaps six months either down in Patagonia, in the remotest part of Patagonia you could possibly imagine, undertaking the film and, and also doing all of the extensive editing that requires that sort of video to be made. And, and like you said, Ed, I mean, we're talking about Patagonia now, and Patagonia is, is, is just an, it's an iconic place in many people's imaginations. And, sure. and that would be absolutely correct. This is a, a, a place that is extremely windy, extremely flat, a very, very small population of people, and, and it's just massive. And, and we were, and, and the hooded greaves particularly, nest on some remote, completely remote plateaus, high plateaus um, in the foothills of the Andes. It was um, an amazing place to visit. I and mean, very few people ever get up to go and see the hooded grebe. Oh, and yes. the journey, you know, the odd journeys we made to get up onto these plateaus, it, it was quite horrifying. We, we, were, we were told we could go and visit one particular lagoon where they thought there might be some hooded grebes. And they'd given me a sort of grid reference as to where we ought to go. And it was just sort of left a bit, right a bit. And we ended up driving through a lava field. And it was just horrendous. Oh, my goodness. And at some stage, I thought, I don't know if we're ever going to get back to civilization again. But we did. We did, indeed. And with the help of the conservation group that were working for Aves Argentinas, they got us to um, the lagoon where some grebes were nesting, uh, they thought were nesting. And um, they left us there with one other couple. So there was just four of us, two, two Americans, two young American people from the and, States, from the States and, and ourselves. Uh, and we lived there for a couple of weeks. Um, we were eight hours away from the nearest road. And, and we just simply lived there, you know, I I either in our van or when it was too windy, sometimes to even be in our van because it could have got blown over. We were in little mountain tents. And, and, wow. and, and it was during that time that we actually found the Greaves and we recorded and filmed their whole, their whole amazing courtship. It is amazing. I mean, I, yeah, Greaves, a lot of Greaves have pretty special courtship displays, but these have got to be near the top of the list of those. And your videos, te uh, Paula, tell you're the videographer, it sounds like. Tell, how the heck did you do that? I mean, I would think you need giant equipment to get that. I mean, you were just well, a little no, truck. No, I had a very modest camcorder at the time. I had it lashed onto my tripod because the wind would be moving it around. So it was quite good that it was a small camera because the wind wouldn't catch the big lens. That was the problem with Mike Stills. And okay. we hid inside a little tent that we'd got on the shore of the lagoon. Oh. And every day... The week previous, we'd moved the tent just a little bit closer every day because we were using it as a, a bird hide. Line, sure. And we were just filming morning, noon, and night. Just any time the birds got close enough, we managed to capture them. And we were very lucky because the courtship only really lasted about 
three days, two or three days, and wow. we just managed to be there at the right time. And the birds were close enough for us to film. They were on our side of the lagoon and we were very lucky. And then yeah. later on, when the chicks hatched, we managed to capture them when they just sort of swung around a rock, came quite close enough for me to capture them. And it, oh, it was stunning. The, the birds are so beautiful. They, they really brought a lump to your throat. I, I Again, the video is spectacular. I, I was just in awe at how, uh, how you could do I mean, I don't think video group from you know, the Hollywood studios could bring in their tower and stuff and could not get better stuff. I mean, you guys had to be very close and it was pretty cool. Well, it was quite funny because recently the BBC, David Attenborough, mm -hmm. has launched a new series called The Mating Game. Oh, okay. And one of the animals featured is the hooded green. And we were talking to some of the guys that had operated as fixers for mm -hmm. the BBC team and they said that the photographer there had her gear, camera plus lens, was eighty thousand dollars. Oh, I don't doubt it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we reckon our whole five-year expedition didn't cost us eighty thousand dollars. <laughs> Very cool. So tell me, tell listeners about this vehicle. I, I saw a, a little some clips of the vehicle. It's like a pop-top Toyota or something. What yes. what were you do using? Well, when we we it took us about a year to plan how we were going to do what we wanted to do. And under obviously it's like we all have budgets. Um and and we had to ship a vehicle across from London to Buenos Aires. So that vehicle, for cost's sake, had to go into a 20-foot container. So a 20-foot container is only so tall. Sure. And um, you, if you stand up, you can just about touch the roof, and that's it. So, um, so it had to go into a 20-foot container. It, was, it had all of our equipment in because we, we had just had to fly over, um, so we couldn't carry anything. So everything for, that we ever were going to need had to go into this vehicle. It was a Toyota. It was a, it was some, a Toyota. I think in in the states you have the Toyota Tacoma and the Toyota Tundra. It was sort of a little bit like those, not as big as it. It was more like the Toyota Tacoma. And and we we Europe camper vans are are only just beginning to take off. Um, and pop top campers just don't exist. They, in Europe, really, they're just not a thing because nobody has trucks. Very few people right. have have trucks. Um, so truck campers, but we knew that truck, the truck camper was the only way we were going to do this. Um, so we actually went to, to we, we contacted the people in California, uh, four-wheel campers, and, and that seemed to be okay. So we just bought one and had it shipped over to the UK and fitted on our truck. They did a bit of engineering work, and, and that's what went in the container. And that's where we lived for five years. <laughs> It wasn't very big. In fact, it was tiny. It was the living space was not much bigger than the desk that Paula and I are sitting at at the moment. Um, but it was it was superb. It was very light. It was very low because it was a pop top camper. It was very low as far as wind resistance was concerned. So we could we could operate in 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 fact we could operate almost anywhere. Um, in fact, before we went, we we took it down to to uh, Spain. And went round Spain, round the Pyrenees, and some little mountain villages, 
and almost you never knew you, you did when you were driving you didn't even know you'd got this this thing behind you it was so small and so light aluminium um and it it, it did very well and it did us fantastic in south america i still saw you being hauled out of some pretty uh, pretty frightening situations it looked like yeah we did have some fairly scary situations <laughs> yeah there was I mean, I, I think probably the two most difficult situations as far well, we had three. In fact, we had lots thinking about it. But we, so we've set, we were caught in a, a sandstorm in, in Patagonia, um, a horrendous sandstorm. It was, I think it was probably more like a hurricane. And I think if we'd have been in a bigger vehicle, it, we would have been blown over. But we had a very low center of gravity with the camper on it. It was, it was a couple of tons. So that anchored us to the ground so we got away from that but the whole vehicle including the windscreen and all of the windows and everything was a shot blasted it, it lasted about 10 minutes and, and literally you could not hardly see out of the windscreen it had all been shot blasted by sand um, and we had to limp away and a couple, about a week later we got to a town where we got a new windscreen fitted we, we had all sorts of electrical problems the electrics had to be sorted out because it had penetrated absolutely every bit of your electrical and mechanical equipment so that was just that was the sandstorm we were in the andean foothills of northern very northern argentina in a wonderful forested area and we had gone up into this national park and they'd given us permission to go high up into the national park um, and and whilst we were there unexpectedly it started to rain the rain season came early and, and we just had the most shocking rain, awful rain. And, and it, it went on for like 24 hours. It never stopped. And we said, we're going to have to just get out of here. We'll never get out if we don't go now. So we had to um, rush to break our camp. Um, I was running around in, in basic, I was just running around in my underpants, trying because everything was just soaking wet. So I was saving my clothes and tearing everything down and, and rescuing our equipment. And, and we just went down this mountainside but and as we realized that the, the rivers had all broken the banks it was flowing down through the forest and we we only just managed to get out of that, that literally at the, by the skin of our teeth um, was, i think that was probably the scariest moment yeah as far as the vehicle across oh. these great big rivers but what about Colombia? oh well <laughs> that was a bit scary as well we were on the coast of Colombia, oh. literally on the caribbean coast and, and, and we were looking for um, Caribbean flamingos. Caribbean flamingos. It was the only flamingo that we'd never managed to film. Um, the others we had, and um, we were going right along by the coast and we'd got a local guide with us. And it was only after a while that we realized that this local guide who was guiding us to this place had actually never been in a, in a motorized vehicle. He, he was a villager uh, from a local community, and he'd only ever traveled across this whole area on a, on a motorbike, a motor scooter. And, and he led us um, over some marshes, and, and we were incredibly near the sea. And, and I should have realized it's my fault. I'm a driver. So, so um, th there was a mix-up in translation. Um, what was the mix-up in translation? Well, for in Spanish, <laughs> there's two words. Derecha means go right, and derecho means straight on. So I got to a certain point and I shouted, which way? In, in, and it, it was misunderstood and, and I went the wrong way. And literally the, the vehicle went straight into soft sand 
and and it was about 20 to 20 meters from the incoming tide so within within a minute the seawater was coming into the footwell of the vehicle we were right down on the back end um, and we had to get everything out of the vehicle so by then a couple of local children had, had spotted what had happened and they, they were all around us so we organized these these children to ferry all of our stuff all of our bags all of our cases all of our equipment all of our clothes all our passports all of our money everything all our documentation all onto a sand dune about sort of 50 yards away and we just we said that's it this is the end there's no way because this tide was coming in and we, we could see that the car was just going to be swept out to sea. Yeah. Amazingly enough, we were quite calm because we knew this was the end and we couldn't do anything about it. We just took some photographs to show the insurance company. <laughs> but, but along came a motorcycle. And again, this is one of the many miracles that, that, that uh, almost that, uh, that uh, we experienced on, on our trips. A, a man came along on, on a motor bike. Um, he had a... a, a phone with him he rang his 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 brother i think or his, his some close cousin and within 10 or 15 minutes a big big sort of ram type truck had appeared on the sand on the shore and he pulled us out wow sometimes you're living right you're just living right sometimes so so um we were very lucky we very were very lucky um yeah indeed and we did we did see the Chilean flamingos. They were obviously wonderful. Um, and, and during the time the, those years, we'd we'd, we'd filmed Kuna uh, flamingos, which is a high, really high altitude one. We'd filmed the the Andean flamingo, which is a slightly rarer one, and and of course the uh, Chilean flamingo. Right. So, so you guys have seen your sure big pink birds. So that's cool. Yeah, we, well, we're, we're all in favor of pink birds. The bigger, the better, because in South America, as you probably know, there's a lot of very small ones. <laughs> yeah. I visited my son in Medellin a, a month and a half or two ago and got a guide to take me out. And you're right, uh, a lot tropical birding in the in the canopy is extremely challenging. It, it is indeed. And 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 Colombia is a special place. I mean, I, I think of, of the two countries that, we were really following the Andes, so we did not go to, we hardly spent more than a week in Brazil, but it was Portuguese and it was really off our route. Um, and we didn't spend that much time in the east of the countries, but certainly as far as the Andes is concerned, we've tracked it right the way up from, from Arge, right through Argentina, which is massive in itself, um, through Peru and Ecuador and into Colombia, and, and perhaps, and Chile, of course. So perhaps Argentina and Colombia were the two countries where we spent most time. Okay. Um, yeah. Which is quite a bit of time, considering you're talking a five-year time frame. I mean, it's not oh, like you spent yeah. a couple of days somewhere. Yeah. No, we, we were probably in Colombia for, again, probably for four months in total, mm -hmm. um, I would think. I mean, Colombia is, is a weird country. Um, and geographically, a very yeah. The, the three yeah. the three ranges of the Andes. Yeah. yeah, yes, it's got these three ranges of mountains. So you, you, the, the the Andes suddenly split into three. There's and there's two great valleys between those three cordilleras: the Cauca mm -hmm. Valley and the Magdalena Valley. Mm -hmm. um, 
And each one of those valleys and each one of those mountain ranges has its own particular bird faunas. Stunning, stunning stuff. We probably spent the most time, well, of the time that we spent in Colombia, I, I think we did two or three main things. We, we spent time on the Western Cordillera, which is mm -hmm. the oldest mountain range and the best. Right. There's no doubt the Western one is the best. Um, it's this Choco Magdalena bio, high biodiversity area. Um, it's just stacked full of birds. And we spent time there and in the forests there, very much forest watching. Um, but we were also, because we're conservationists, we were also interested in one or two things. So we were interested in um, coffee, growing of coffee. And we were interested in, I've always had, um, one of my favorite North American birds has always been the Canada warbler. So we were really interested in the Canada warbler. Mm -hmm. um, and and coffee and the two are related the two are very very closely related i've because, heard this because the place where coffee grows is exactly the place where the elevational side where coffee is grown coffee is grown that's the wintering quarters of the canada warbler and and because coffee has exploded in the last 10 or 20 years in terms of global popularity then coffee is being grown in a very unsustainable way in many, many areas. And there's been huge deforestation. So this is one of the reasons why Canada warblers are so, so uncommon, relatively speaking. Um, and the other thing is, so in, in a way, sort of you're in a place like Switzerland. So if you can imagine Switzerland, you're in that. Okay. So now I'll take you to a different country, which is like, imagine you're in Tibet, well, that's the, that, okay. that's the eastern part of Colombia, which is like a plateau, a sort of a plateau, but 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 uh, but uh, grassland, high grassland, um, with the Orinoco River running through it and things like that. We were invited by the BirdLife partner in Colombia, whose their organisation is called Calidris, and they said, "Would we like to go to the Janos, which is these extensive grasslands?" that extend over much of uh, eastern Colombia and, and into Venezuela. Would we like to go there with a couple of their biologists and make a film on the buff-breasted sandpiper? So this was a bird that I had never seen before, and it was a bird that I knew almost nothing about. But, but as you know, I'm sure, and many of your North American listeners will know that um, it's, it's in trouble. The, the populations are down um, and, and, and therefore there's quite a bit of a conservation effort going into knowing all about this bird. So the, 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 uh, the buff-breasted sandpiper, as you know, as far as, well, it breeds right up of almost as far north as the land would enable it to, Alaska, mm -hmm. one slope, and it migrates down through the sort of central flyway. I, I don't believe it is very, it's very seldom seen, I think. I've never been out looking for it, obviously, in, in North America. Um, it, it flies 8,000 miles south and winters in Uruguay and on the river plate grasslands near to Buenos Aires or close to Buenos Aires. Although, by the way, they wouldn't call it wintering, they would call it summering. <laughs> Sure. It's, it's Bob Bradley's sandpiper has got it right. It's a bird of two summers, isn't it, really? Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's fun that the 
fun that the Latin America, the Latin Americans, you know, rightly think that their birds just come up here to breed. They really live down here. And we think that our breeding birds go down there to spend the winter. So yeah. <laughs> it depends who you're talking to. We, we did find one thing. We got very confused about seasons because of course, being in the Southern hemisphere, mm-hmm. we kept saying it's March. So it's spring. Oh no, hang on a minute. No, it's autumn. And then, it's July, so it's summer. Hang on, no, no, no. July is winter, and we, we, our minds took, you know, and we kept saying things like, "Oh, this is the austral summer," but that does sound a bit fancy. It does, and my daughter lives in Costa Rica, and and the the people in Costa Rica they don't talk about winter and say the dry season and the wet season. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the green season and the dry season, or whatever. I mean, winter and summer don't have particular meaning when you're near the equator. Yeah, so yeah. it's different. So I mean, and, and it, of course, in the Janos, which are these grasslands in in the east of Colombia, which is that that is very much a, a wet season and a dry season place. It's just crazy. It's a crazy place because um, for half of the year it is flooded, completely flooded, a meter of a, a meter or more of, of 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 water just covering the landscape. The, Ice. For the local people, the only way to get round traditionally is on horseback. And we wondered why everybody we saw on horseback had bare feet. Well, they explained to us, no point wearing boots because the water just goes in your boots. So it was just the dumb thing. If you rode a horse, you were, you were bare feet. Yeah. Obviously. And then in the dry season, the rivers all recede. These are the rivers that are coming off the Andes. They, they, they retreat mm-hmm. back. The grasslands become just a wonderful emerald um, cloth of, of, of grassland, superb for cattle rearing. And the historic cattle ranches of the region are called hatos. They are, a hato is, um, is like a, a, an Argentinian estancia, but it's about 10,000 hectares in extent. And the cattle roam freely over that ground um, in very small numbers large amount of ground, small numbers of cattle. And they've been doing this, um, this type of ranching for several hundred years. So this is, the, this is real cowboy country. I mean, these are real cowboys. They're called janeros. They have a wonderful sort of um, address. They, they, and, 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 and they make everything themselves. They are completely isolated. Um, because it's such an extensive area. And, and they have this wonderful habit of singing to their cattle to round them up. These, these cattlemen, these ranchers are out um, for months at a time, weeks and weeks and sometimes months at a time with their cattle. Um, and they sing to them to, to find out where they are. The cattle know the particular songs. Sort of, and it would be like a whistling song. The po- Paula, do you have any video of this uh, singing cowboys? Uh, yes, I do. Oh, very cool. And we went into the Shannos with uh, Carlos and Junior and then two biologists. We made a film that, that we called The Sons of the Savannah. Oh, you'll have to send we, me uh, some of these on YouTube. Yeah, it's, it's our YouTube channel is called The Condor's Feather. So if you look up, if you just search for YouTube channel, The Condor's Feather, mm-hmm. you'll see, as one of our films, it's called The Sons of the Savannah, and we're 
with okay. the, we made the film for Carlos and Janeira and for Calidris to use so that they could encourage the local ranchers to carry on farming in their traditional manner because the way the cattle tread very lightly on the land makes it perfect for the buff-breasted sandpiper. So we're very pleased that Carlos and Janeiro have been using this, not only in some international grassland conferences, they've also used it in the local area to really encourage the local ranchers to carry on farming in their traditional way. I mean, the buff-breasted sandpiper is... I mean, to look at it, I mean, as far as a South American bird is concerned, it would not even appear on anybody's list because, because it's, it's, a, it's, it's, not brown. A, it's brown, it's small and brown, it's a shore bird. Um, yeah. But, but it has, it's a fascinating history. As, as Paula just said, it, its major stopping off point on its migration are in these grasslands of north of eastern Colombia because they follow the cattle. One of the reasons why this bird has been has declined so much in the last 200 years is because the buff-breasted sandpipers used to migrate through the great Midwestern grasslands, short grass prairies, following the bison of North America. Mm-hmm. And with the bison gone, so the birds disappeared. And of course, everything else that's happened to the short grass prairies. And so, in a way, the same sort of thing, it has been happening in South America with the extensive um, destruction of grasslands. Overgrazing. Uh, for yes. intensive grazing and not extensive grazing. But the rice, the soya. The soya and all these sort of things. So, um, so that's what we were doing. We were really trying to encourage the ranchers to, to uh, manage the land in, in, in not as profitable as way as what they could have done. But, but there's a whole culture, their own culture established with it. Like I was saying, these singing ranching stories, um, that's just one of them. And like we said, the, the farms are very isolated. And as we were traveling from one atoll to the next, we had to be met at the first atoll to be taken to the next door atoll. Now, the next door atoll was a seven-hour drive away. So that tells you how big these ranches are. Absolutely stupendous. Absolutely huge. Don't have to worry about uh, your neighbor overhearing you when you're chatting or anything, do you now? And as you're passing over this grassland, there are little, little, slightly higher areas which have um, small forests of marichi palm. And the marichi palm is a very classical uh, characteristic tree of the area and it's in these palm trees that the Orinoco goose nests about mm. 20 or 30 foot up in holes um, and, and therefore we were able to find the Orinoco goose which is wow very one. very unusual I yeah. uh, I watched I watched the birders show uh, have you seen the uh, with uh, I think it's Chris Bell and yeah. uh, uh, Diego uh, Calderon do the birders show and they had uh, a Great Britain waterfowl guy i can't remember his name but it's a guy who's been big in waterfowl research and writing and stuff and he, he got to go see these i think it was the same goose uh, that were in in that area in columbia i think so. it was tim appleton that could be yeah yeah, yeah. We, we met chris actually we met chris yeah, we did. on a bus trip <laughs> <laughs> we went to the south american bird fair which was held in manizales a couple of years ago and oh, they really worked you hard. They had 
outings every morning, starting at five o'clock in the morning. And mm. then they were partying till gone midnight as well. Yeah, got to have fun. You had to be a, a strong birder to cope with the pace there. And we went with Chris and we went high, high up into the Paramo. Mm. And up in the Paramo, weird plants called Freikonis. And on the top of these funny Freilahola plants, it was the Buff breast, Buffy Helmet the Crest. Buffy, the Buffy Helmet Crest, the which is this hummingbird. superb high hummingbird. And we were able to film this hummingbird in, I think it was sleeting. It was the most horrible, cold, miserable weather. And this poor little hummingbird was desperately trying to feed and flitting through the raindrops. Oh. Cool stuff. Well, I will have to explore your YouTube channel a whole lot more. It sounds like really good stuff. I want to get on to your book, though. You're writing a book. Uh, you have written a book that's going to be published soon. Tell me about it. Well, when we came back, um, we had a lot of stories to tell. <laughs> and I started to write the book. And, and of course, along came COVID and it came, along came the lockdown. And that just seemed um, the perfect reason to just to hunker down and start writing so really that was about 18 months ago to probably two years ago now um and the, and the book is due out in the uk it's due out in february and in the in north america it will be due out in may um the book's called the condor's feather um and it relates the some of the stories uh, of of our journey from Patagonia right up to the Caribbean. Some of the people we met. Yeah. It tells you, you know, the reason why we went, why we were able to go. And the fascinating stories of a lot of the people that we met. Yeah. Some, you know, all we met people from all walks of life, didn't we? From all classes of society. And they were all passionate about birds. And we, we were quite privileged, I think, to meet so many interesting, fascinating people. Well, I am really looking forward to, to when it comes out. I've, uh, I put in my pre-order on Amazon today. So, uh, so it's, a, it's, it's on the way. I'm not sure when. Now, are there, is there a lot of photography in the book too? A lot of pictures? Or I'm trying, I, I waffling between getting the Kindle version, which I usually do because I can travel with my little Kindle and read all the time. Uh, or should I get the, a paper version? Because pictures are usually better in paper version because I don't read it on a computer. Well, it's, that's an interesting discussion, really, because um, when I first, uh, when I'd written the book, or when I thought I'd written the book, mm -hmm. I sent it to a, a couple of publishers. And, and from everything that I'd read and from everything that was going on at the time, I'd been told this could take, it could take you 18 months to, to get this book uh, accepted for publication right. because it's just such a competitive field. Um, and I sent it off and, and within uh, a week, within probably a week or two weeks, I'd had um, Collins, um, Parker Collins, Collins mm -hmm. say that they were interested and we had a good discussion with them and, and then a couple of other people. And it really went, um, it went to the publisher who said that they were prepared to put some photographs in. Unfortunately, Harper Collins weren't prepared to get to the expense of putting photos in. So we, within another couple of days, we were talking to another publisher called September Publishing. Okay. And they are very keen on the look of a book. 
mm-hmm. and so they've put in maps. Yeah, and we've got a we've got a lot of Michael's photographs yeah, in. We've got a sixteen-page, I think a sixteen-page mm. insert of photo photograph photographs, color photographs that have gone in. Um, which, considering I took about forty thousand, <laughs> um, is only a few highly um, curated. Probably most of them are birds, but there's a few people and one or two of places. So the, the, so the book has got photographs. Okay, good for Then I'll have to get it in paper because I, I, uh, my little paper white Kindle does not do justice to pictures at all. Uh, so thanks for the, thanks for the heads up on that. Uh, uh, and uh, I hope the book does really well. It sounds like uh, the, the adventure was, uh, you know, say once in a lifetime is an understatement. You have yeah. done some other extensive traveling though. I, I saw on your, uh, somewhere I saw when I was trying to research about you, you've been to uh, other adventuresome sort of places around the world. Where, where else have you traveled? We're the sort of people that whenever we go anywhere, if I say to Michael, oh, I'd like to go to Australia, Michael immediately says, well, what birds can we see when we get there? Mm-hmm. So... In Australia, we went to Australia. Um, we've been to yeah, Madagascar. Madagascar, certainly to see the coors there. Mm-hmm. Um, the parrots, obviously, in Australia uh, are just unbelievable. And um, in fact, it wasn't the place that was would have been first on my list. Um, but but when we went, I realised that Australia is absolutely a land of birds. It's just the most beautiful place, um, the most incredible place. Um, We've also visited India. We had a long six-week trip to India, and we went with a, a birder friend of ours, Trevor Jones. And nice. Trevor, very excited, he managed to get his 3,000th species of bird with us, and Good. I managed to capture the moment on film. You have to find that film on Vimeo somewhere. It's called Target 3000. And so we followed Trevor's journey as he was trying to... Uh, see his three thousand birds so that was quite good but we've got to update that film because he's up to five thousand now there's a lot of birds out there a lot of places to go and it sounds like you guys have been to a lot of them good for you guys well i will make sure i put links to uh amazon or someplace to get your book uh when it comes out get on the waiting list for it it's a must buy it sounds like uh and it's been really nice talking to you do you have any uh parting uh words you want to share Probably one parting word is is to to people to to enjoy their birds and not to waste your money on silly things that won't help you see more birds and won't enjoy life. Because one of the the best things that's ever happened to both of us is that we've been interested in birds. And, And if you follow your heart and just watch birds, you will always be more happy than if you hadn't. Sounds like spoken like a true birder and from your heart. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Paula, Michael. I appreciate you being on the podcast today. It's been really fun talking to you. And I will let you know uh, when this gets up. Thanks now. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that wraps up the Bird Banner Podcast, episode 119. Thanks for listening. Oh my goodness, what a story. I cannot wait for this book to come out. Sounds great. In the meantime, check out some of Paula's videos and enjoy listening. Uh, Thanks so much. Spread the word if you like this episode. I think non-birders might like this too. Uh, So make sure you tell your friends about this. They can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast feeds. Uh, Give me feedback if you have guests you'd like to hear 
here on the podcast coming up, reach out to me. You can always get me on the contact page on birdbanner.com. So thanks again for listening. Until next time, good birding, good day.